Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there, full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Rational Funds. This and other important information about the fund is contained in the prospectus, which can be obtained by calling 800-253-0412 or at www.rationalmf.com. The prospectus should be read carefully before investing. The Rational Funds are distributed by Northern Lights Distributors, LLC member FINRA SIPC. Rational Advisors Incorporated and Resolve Asset Management Incorporated are not affiliated with Northern Lights Distributors, LLC. Hi everyone, this is Adam Butler. I'm the Chief Investment Officer of Resolve Asset Management Global and you are listening to Gestalt University Podcast. Today's podcast is with a very special guest. We have Dr. Antti Ilmanen, who is the Principal and Global Co-Head of the Portfolio Solutions Group at AQR Capital Management. Many of you will also know Antti as the author of one of, you know, a handful of core investment Bibles called Expected Returns, which was written about a decade ago. And Auntie has just completed and brought to publication a new book called Investing Amid Low Expected Returns, Making the Most When Markets Offer the Least. So this book covers current equity valuations and what they imply for future equity returns, both domestic and international and emerging. We cover bond returns. 
We cover commodities and other inflation assets, which I think obviously are very relevant for the current environment. And then we dig into some of the intricate details of Auntie's main focus, which is alt style premia. So we dig into value, momentum versus trend, spend a lot of time on trend and its role in an inflationary environment. Carry, we spend a lot of time on carry because it's one of my favorite and I think most overlooked global diversified strategies. And of course, defensives, so our low risk type strategies. And then we spent some time figuring out how to put it all together and investigating ways to put it together and with approaches that institutions and individuals can manage because sometimes the optimal way to put things together just aren't possible based on constraints or other preferences. So we try to make it practical and implementable. Anyway, without further ado, I want to bring you this interview, but I will note that Auntie's book is currently available on Amazon. It's called Investing Amid Low Expected Returns, Making the Most When Markets Offer the Least. And there is a dedicated website for the book on AQR's website at aqr.com slash serenity. So let's have the interview with Auntie. Thanks for listening. Okay, we are live. I want to welcome Auntie Ilmanen to Gestalt U. Auntie, it's really exciting to have you here. Thanks so much for making the time for us today. Sure. Thanks for inviting me, Adam. You know, I say this a lot on our podcasts that for those who don't know, and I'm sure, you know, unless you've been living under a rock, you'll know Auntie Ilmanen, but we should probably give you a formal introduction. So Auntie is a principal and global co-head of the Portfolio Solutions Group at AQR Capital Management. In this role, he manages the team responsible for advising institutional investors and sovereign wealth funds and develops the firm's broad investment ideas. Prior to joining AQR, Auntie spent seven years as a senior portfolio manager at Brevin Howard and a decade in a variety of roles at Solomon Brothers Citigroup. We can go on and on because your resume goes back a long way and is jam-packed with lots of extremely interesting roles. But uh, I want to talk about... Chicago students, Chicago students there with underfarmer and friends with Cliff and John and others. Let's, let's give that as well. Yeah. That's good. And that's important for us to mention, given the context for today's discussion. So thank you. I'm glad that you reminded us of that. So we're here to talk about your new book. And I know it's a follow-on to your book, Expected Returns, which was a seminal work for me. It inspired about a decade of investigation and research and writing for me. And I know there's a broad diaspora of devotees of your work from Expected Returns, many of which I know personally, and you know we go back and forth pretty regularly about many of these concepts. So this new book is called investing amid low expected returns. And I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy. So thank you very much for that. And so I'm, I'm excited to dig into this new content. So maybe before we get going, just a brief synopsis about what motivated you to write this follow-on piece. Yeah, well, I've always had a preacher's passion. And I thought I sort of scratched that itch or <laughs> with the first book. But a few years into my AQR time, I felt that I had learned enough new stuff 
that I, I wanted to sometime share it. And so I was sort of waiting for the opportunity and the opportunity came somehow with the lockdowns and so on. And, uh, and I wanted to see what I've been able to learn and also sort of miss in that first book, because it was about all the building blocks in investments, but it didn't put too much of the low expected return context, which wasn't so obvious in late 2000, uh, 2009, 10, when I was writing it. So, um, so the context of low expected returns I wanted to put there, and I wanted to also include what I learned a lot in AQR, the other parts of investment process, how to put everything together. So those were the additional pieces that I, that I really wanted to get, besides updating things after 10 years. Yeah, that makes sense. The book is called Investing Amid Low Expected Returns, and you make a very comprehensive case for low returns to most popular investment categories over the next decade or perhaps longer. And you know what I find fascinating is that many empiricists, including me, have been calling for low returns to especially U.S. equities and, and perhaps global equities and bonds for going on maybe over 10 years at least. And somehow global cap weighted indices and especially U.S. indices have delivered substantially above average returns over most of that horizon. And I think it's really timely to revisit these topics now that we've gone through this decade and many of us have sort of been a little bit on our back foot in terms of our analytical cases and our analytical models. And I'm just wondering, what happened, do you think, over the last decade that was so different and rendered the models that we were used to using and, and that were reliable historically uh, more off than usual? Yeah, yeah. I think that's such an important question because those high realized returns of the past decade, they make any reasonable observer wonder whether these Cassandras are like the boy who cried wolf and we shouldn't listen to them anymore. And I do think, and I, I do make a strong case that this is a dangerous time to become complacent and it's likely a wrong lesson at this point. So I do deal with it in the book and actually in something we have written more recently, just as a sort of 10 year, retrospective, how did these forecasts in general get it so wrong? And we can look at realized returns and see why. And, and S&P 500 is a really good case in point because that's really at the heart of this strong success, even more than bonds actually. So the main answer is that rich assets got even richer. So if you think of the CAPE or Schiller price earnings ratio of S&P 500, it went in the last 10 years from mildly above average 20-ish to wildly above average 40-ish. And you know, that kind of doubling of valuations, you can calculate how much that means prorated for every year, and it's almost 7% per year. And so if you could foresee that, you know, like I'm, I'm grateful that we were not calling for mean reversion like some others were, but just sort of thinking of that starting yields are a good anchor. They didn't turn out to be a good anchor when you got that type of repricing. There also was uh, benign growth and low inflation. So I do think that it's important to head on, sort of explain why the forecast was wrong. But also then, if you sort of buy the argument that, okay, that's water under the bridge, then the question is, what about now? So now the starting yields are even lower. So the picture in some sense is even bleaker. So 
one simple way of thinking is if, if this cape is 40 and it's not quite 40 now, but that would mean two and a half percent. So one over 40 is the yield. So one over price is the yield. So two and a half percent expected real return proxy. And a de decade ago, it was about 5%. So that was, sorry, 20 Cape was about 5%. So we really have got this much more challenging situation. For the coming decade, we would need really more richening, another growth surprise, and actually probably disinflation to make things work and to get another positive return surprise. More likely we'll get the opposite. Yeah, I'm certainly in that camp as well. And in the book, you talk a little bit about these windfall gains and, and how investors are able to observe and understand and internalize the idea of the fact that falling bond yields were responsible for a large part of the rise in global bond portfolios over this period. But somehow they're not able to connect the same dots for equity valuations. But in fact, equities and bonds were both impacted by this discount rate effect, which provided a very substantial tailwind, not just, of course, over the past decade, but over the last 30 to 40 years. So how, I mean, and you mentioned this, right, going from sort of a lower cape or a, a high cape to an even higher cape over the last decade, which implies going from a low earnings yield to an even lower earnings yield. So what does that imply, do you think, for U.S. equities and perhaps for global equities over the next 10 to 20 years? So I, I do have an advantage in being an old bond guy, because in bond markets, it is so obvious that when yields are falling for the future, you should be looking at those starting yields. And for the past, those falling yields probably meant that you got some what I call windfall gains or the discount rate effect. Basically, you earned more than you were expecting because of this sort of unexpected yield decline. And something similar happens for equities, actually for our various illiquid assets as well, real estate, etc. And that has influenced all these other asset classes. It's just not so transparent when the yield isn't staring you at, at the face. And there are some other moving parts in the in the pricing, but, but it really would serve well any equity and illiquid investor to think of the same logic. And that logic then says that when you interpret past returns, you sort of try to adjust for the windfall gains that you got from some within sample repricing. Also, Cliff has written nicely about it in last year in a, in a blog. That helps you somewhat immunize against what I call rear view mirror expectations and the complacency that you get from those high returns. And specifically now on equities, you are asking. So equities are even more long-lived asset than bonds. So there are different ways of measuring duration. For bonds, duration is average cash flow length or sensitivity to your own discount rate. For equities, sometimes people talk of equity duration as sensitivity to bond yields, but that confuses things, I think, with the stock bond correlation. It's better to talk about equity duration in terms of sensitivity to do its own discount rate. And when I estimate that, I get something like, let's say, duration of 15, which is more than for most bonds. So any 1% move in equity discount rate gives 15% repricing of equities. And there are, by the way, like other models where, like some simple models where you would assume that cash flows are totally constant, you would get even bigger numbers, 30, 40, 50 year type of duration for equities. Anyway, so equities, really long duration, and that means 
that they have benefited a lot. Actually, like I calculate in recent decades, there's been maybe 3% type of annual repricing of equities. Even over the last 100 years, more than 100 basis points of average returns has come from repricing. Anyway, so that's sort of, that's something to look back and going ahead. It again, I think makes me more cautious, even taking, assuming that yields are where they are. If one thinks that there would be some correction towards higher yields, that's a really scary scenario. Yeah, I was struck by the fact that you clearly have been doing this for a long time because you brought substantial humility to your modeling process. And for example, you didn't assume any sort of mean reversion in margins, in discount rates, or in the earnings yield for equities in your models. And so even if you don't assume that margins will revert somewhat toward the mean or that yields will normalize or that earnings yields will normalize it or PE ratios will normalize, you still end up with fairly low expected returns for global equities. What about relative expectancy, for example, U.S. versus international versus emerging? Are there, is there anything to take away from that? U.S. equities have for many years now looked like the most expensive one and they have kept outperforming. So I think it's just one more case of how contrarian strategies, whether you think of market direction, country allocation, stock selection, contrarian strategies had a pretty sad decade, which by the way, makes me think that it's, a, it's again dangerous to extrapolate that lesson looking for the next 10 years, because if anything, after that, that, that period, things can go the other way. Anyway, so very extreme relative valuation between US and the rest of the world right now. But that story could have been told a few years ago and, and you would have sort of drawn the wrong lessons. I think there are good stories of why US should outperform. Intuitively, there's this idea of US exceptionalism or so. And that would be, you know, you've got the rule of law, you have got the entrepreneurial spirit, tolerance of failure and so on. They all business-friendly policies. I think they all, all are helpful, but they also are features that arguably should make sort of US equities maybe less risky and less risky investments should give you lower expected returns. And maybe we've had that repricing from cheaper US equities to richer, but, but again, US has been a leader for such a long time that I don't think it's... I do think that the main story why US has outperformed in the last 10 plus years is just repricing. One can actually like see that mechanically, same type of story that I was saying, it has been most pronounced in US. And so it's that type of edge that has given the US outperformance in the last 10, 15 years. There have earlier been decades where US has underperformed for, for a decade or longer. So it, it's certainly not you know guaranteed in any way. But it is maybe worth, last thing I say here is there's a, you know, there is this great Dimson, Marston, history of 120 years of equity returns. And in that one, they compare different countries. They find that U.S. outperformed non-U.S. world by 2% over this long history. And pretty much all of that 2% for that long history came from faster dividend growth in U.S. So it wasn't for that history, it wasn't repricing. Or so I think like there has been really something strong, maybe, maybe, you know, it can be a success by us that the U.S. was the, the country of the 20th century and so on. That was the main edge for the long history, but more recently, it hasn't been that type of edge. It has been just that 
it has repricing to more expensive levels, which I think does store some trouble for the future. Right. So doubling down on this theme, I do see it argued quite frequently that because U.S. companies derive such a high proportion of their revenues from international operations, that an investor can get enough international exposure by owning, for example, the S&P 500, that they may not need to diversify directly internationally. How do you hold on that view? Yeah, that reminds me of something I've always been curious about, that Mr. Passive Jack Bogle and Mr. Active Warren Buffett both shared this view, U.S. portfolio should be favored. And it's, it's a, I think it's a very active decision. I do think the, the broad point you make is, is fair that you get some revenues from abroad. There's another logic that U.S. equity market is anyway, 50, 60% maybe of global equities nowadays. So home bias is a much, I don't know, bigger sin for somebody from a small country. And it's not too much of a sin for a U.S. person. But I do think that why this story is so popular now is again a return chasing logic that U.S. equities outperformed for a long time. We want to continue with that, many investors think, and they want to think of reasons why that would be the right thing to do also for the future and not just for the past. And I do think that there's a danger in that. Right. Notwithstanding currency effects as well, which can have very large impacts on portfolio performance, especially in the sort of intermediate term. Yeah. Another common challenge to the idea that stocks are expensive and this again pertains particularly to the US, is the idea that buybacks have been a feature of US equity markets over the last couple of decades. And that this may, or the typical sort of Gordon growth model-based estimates may not effectively account for this. And you do go through the Strelanibison study in your book. Maybe just briefly summarize how they modified their model to account for buybacks and maybe what that implies for equity returns. Yeah, that's the best study on this question that if buybacks are now sort of challenging dividends or dividends have been replaced or augmented as a payout, how should we adjust the dividend discount model? Should it be something else than dividend yield and dividend or earnings growth or so? And so they add buybacks, they create very long histories. And it really starts to matter only from 1980s onwards. But then it is also fair to say that if you include buybacks, you should sort of include the flip side of it, which is companies issuing equity. And when you think of the net of those two, it turns out that it doesn't matter nowadays so much. So the big picture today is not too important. Historically, there is, I mean, this is related to geeky concept of 2% dilution that equity market Persistent issuance into equity market created sort of two percent dilution, but nowadays buybacks are so much bigger that there is there's pretty much a sort of I don't know zero dilution. So I would say that right now it doesn't matter too much, but any historical analysis needs to recognize that there has been this transition towards other ways of giving payouts to investors, and and you have to interpret your data much more carefully. I confess that. I studied this a few years ago with my team quite a bit. We wrote about it. Ultimately, I felt that yeah, we got lots of, I don't know, headache-inducing topics from that and not too much more, I don't know, true wisdom out of it. So 
it's something I do cover in the book, but I don't really encourage anybody to spend huge resources on it. I do think that relatively straightforward models still give broadly the same story, whether you look at sort of dividend yield type of approaches, again, maybe tip them a little higher with this net buyback effects. And the other possibilities look at earning yield based approaches. Yep. I like that. I do sympathize with some of the papers that talk about elasticity of of equity pricing and sort of in the context of the fact that issuance typically or often high proportion of issuance is in the form of stock-based compensation. And the owners of that are either forbidden to sell that immediately into the market or you know they, they often just hoard that for ownership's sake in the company. Whereas buybacks have a direct impact on flows. And there's this sort of consistent buyer equities in the public market. And there may just be some impact based on the fact that there's not perfect elasticity of supply demand within the pricing model at the market level. And that just may, at the margin, cause prices to, to sort of systematically rise. But there hasn't been a lot of a lot written on that. But I think that's a... Yeah. There are just so many angles to that. Again, like one intuition is that dividends are still more sticky. Like, you know, it's easier to do buybacks because, you know, you don't commit as much to doing them all the time. And then, again, th- these are not the only things. Like some said, okay, you should really think about the cash that given back through acquisitions and you should think about the debt part. And so, again, I mentioned that this is sort of headache, raises lots of headache-inducing questions and, and, and I, yeah. I, I, I think I, I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah, we'll put a pin in equities maybe for a moment um, and maybe talk a little bit about bonds. And so I'm wondering, given, you know, a month ago, we actually would have had a slightly different conversation about bonds because, of course, bond yields have jumped so substantially, especially at the short end over the last six or eight weeks. But they're still low historically. And I'm just wondering, I think a lot of people are wondering whether bonds still have a place in a long-term strategic asset allocation? And if so, how should investors think about bonds right now? So first, I do think they have a role. And obviously, for somebody who has got liabilities, like there's liability matching. But there's also the diversification argument, which negative stock bond correlation has been very helpful. We'll soon write about something, whether that's likely to continue. But in general, like if you think of sort of macro diversification, there's really nothing else that helps if you get a scenario of deflationary recession or 2008 repeat or something like that. I think it's pretty or highly unlikely in the current situation that we get there. But, you know, in an uncertain world, I'd like to have something for that particular scenario in the portfolio. So I, I do think that even with the expensiveness of GAVIs. And obviously, yields have risen a lot, and so I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But in general, you know, bond yields, you think of there's the cash part, and then there or expected cash return, and then there's required term premium. And I've written about both, and I think like all of these have led to these very low yields that we have seen in recent years, even negative in many countries. So there are savings glut type of explanations why real cash rates are so low, and sort of central banks have, I would say they haven't led that, they have accommodated to that reality. And then when you think of term premium, in my mind, it's sort of driven mainly by inflation risk premium, the safe haven premium due to negative stock bond correlation, and supply demand factors like the QE. And all of those pushed 
yields low. And now all of those might be pushing yields higher. And so that's it's an interesting situation. And it is not relevant only for bond investors. It's relevant for everybody. So in some way, my, you know, the, the key theme there is why is everything expensive in this world? It is because all long only assets, also equities, illiquids and so on, they are priced as if by looking at expected cash flows divided by discount rate, which contains the riskless part and some diverse risk premia. And when that common part of the discount rate is so low as it has been, that makes everything expensive. That's the big background story there. So that has justified the expensive valuations for everything, meaning that basically equities have their starting yields as low as, his, as, as we've seen real estate as well and so on. And that's that justification. It sort of means that we should really expect those lower expected returns in the future. But it also says if bond yields and especially if real yields, more real yields, than inflation. If real yields start to rise from here, that's going to hurt so many assets. And that it may be that it's going to prevent real yields from rising too much because, again, that would be too painful. Anyway, my main point, only about bonds and, and what happens to bonds doesn't stay with bonds only. Actually, in the last few weeks, equity markets seem to act as if they could ignore it. This is a very short term and not, not related to my books, Long Horizon and humble approach, but I really think that that's an unreasonably optimistic stance that equity markets were taking in recent weeks. Yeah, I think we're on the same page there. Credit, you took a bit of a different take on credit in this book. And again, linking it back to what we're seeing in markets right now, Andrew Lowe, adaptive markets hypothesis, markets are clearly adapting to a fairly rapid shift in global monetary policy and obviously contemporaneous inflation dynamics. And we've seen market participants flip from pursuing the duration premium to the credit premium, right? So we've seen OAS spreads. They haven't really budged. If anything, they've, they've tightened, especially in high yield land since the beginning of the year, while investors have sort of been fleeing duration into credit. I've always been of the opinion, and you know, my analysis sort of suggests that the credit premium is a bit of a myth, right? That when I've regressed the credit premium on, for example, a risk-balanced portfolio of equities and appropriate duration treasuries over the long term, and then I look for an intercept for the credit, and I don't see one. But I know there has been some recent research that suggests that, in fact, there is a credit premium independent of rates and equity risk. So maybe... Just talk for a second about why you shifted your views on the credit premium in this book and what is the role of credit maybe going forward? I do think that very fair questions you have there. I do think that as a first order thing, credit premium is closely related to equity. So one would somehow think that that premium doesn't have too much extra over equity premium. It could be like there are some ideas that, you know, like this maybe some illiquidity premium. We will probably talk about that later. And we, we, we don't think there's too much of illiquidity premium in general. So that's not too important. But another one is that's a different type of non-linearity. Equities are sort of long options and credits are short options that could give some advantages to credit. So I think there are some logical reasons. Empirically, I think it does depend on the data, like some research my colleagues wrote where they found that there is a role for credits. It was a longer study and, and it was maybe from some earlier decades that had more of that story. And again, I think last decade, 
partly I'm more positive because basically last decade was better and the previous book ended when credit spreads were still exceptionally wide and now they are on the, in the narrow end. And I do think that it's always right to try to adjust your inferences you make on average returns. You, you quickly lose. Were there now some sample specific valuation changes? Could we adjust for them and see somehow what people were really expecting and requiring more neutrally without that sort of surprise part? So I think that's a good thing to do. I'm pretty open to uh, debating whether credits had much extra beyond the equity premium angle there. But one thing which I sort of highlighted in the first book and again now is that there's this one weird result that we find that the average realized return on credits over governments, even for investment grade bonds, is a fraction of the average spread. And so where did it disappear? In my first book, I wrote that this is about 25% of the spread is realized. Now it has grown to something like 50% because we have had a nicer decade. I, I think that is, that's there. But, but so, so the more, more interesting question is, so where did it go? What was the source of the leakage? And there are some different reasons, but the most important one is uh, index investors tendency, and so this is sort of index calculation, tendency to sell so-called fallen angels. Fallen angels are the bonds that are downgraded from triple Bs to double Bs, so basically to below investment grade. And many institutions have a rule that you have to sell them now. And then they are sold in a few weeks at fire sale prices. And it's weird, it's, it's not a big part of the market, but it's big enough effect that's taken something like 30 basis points or something of the overall index returns in the long run and supposedly also in the last decade. So I would say then that if anybody does sort of the, I don't know, the reasonable thing and tries to promise, commit to not selling the fallen angels, do the right thing here, and so basically maybe change some organizational rules there, then we'll have 30 basis points more. And I think there's going to be a little bit better case for saying that credits deserve their role in the portfolio. Yeah, that's a really strong potential source of alpha for organizations. Absolutely. And I first learned about the Fallen Angels premium. I don't know if you read the book, The Missing Risk Premium by Eric Falkenstein. Oh, Falkenstein. Oh, I love. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, absolutely. And and he was the one that brought this Fallen Angels premium to my attention. I've always thought that of all the reasons to invest in credit, that's the most interesting because there's a structural reason for it to exist. And that organizational structure for big insurance companies and, and many large pension pensions, for example, is, is unlikely to change going forward. So this premium is likely to persist. So yeah, I've, I've always found that that's, that's really interesting. So we're talking about bonds. We talked about equities. You mentioned that bonds still play a role in portfolios because they offer ballast to equities during disinflationary or lower growth shocks. And of course, there's another side of that coin, and that is the inflationary side. And for the first time, arguably in in 30 or maybe even 40 years, we're seeing inflation rear its ugly head at the moment. And so I think it is timely to focus some time on what is missing from many portfolios, which is assets that don't have positive betas to inflation shocks. So I know you touch on commodities in this book. First of all, more generally, what are some asset classes or instruments that investors should contemplate 
to help to balance their portfolios against inflation risk. And then maybe specifically, we could talk about the role of commodities and their investability. Sure. I think it is really important, the point you made that investors really don't have much in their portfolio that benefits from rising inflation. And, you know, in 2010s, they could count their blessings. And anybody who had commodities, actually, like you can see it, like pension allocations to incipient commodity allocations were sort of taken down then during the decade because it didn't work. And again, sort of, we may return to the investor patience is a tough one. And so certainly like commodities, commodity allocations didn't survive the bad decade in most cases. So basically both stocks and bonds, this higher inflation. And there are very few things, commodities and lots of different commodities, depending on what kind of inflation. That's why we tend to like broad commodities, because we don't know what kind of inflation is going to sort of hit us. So commodities are, I don't know, best of a bad lot in some sense or so. Uh, break-even inflation and some real assets. But I would be warning that I really like some Elroy Dimson language. Sometimes he said that there can be inflation protection from a premium, for example, equities or maybe from some private assets. But it doesn't mean that it's inflation hedging in the sense of correlation, doing well when inflation is rising. There are very few things that do that. Again, commodities and break-even inflation is pretty much the only difference between nominal and real bonds. Anyway, so I think commodities are great for this diversification aspect, inflation protection, inflation hedging aspect, which is really rare. But in addition, so our research, I, I want to highlight this, our research, our colleagues, not mine, has highlighted with more than 100 years of data that commodities actually also offer a positive long-run reward, commodity futures portfolios. And I think like there's a lot of intuition out there that commodities tend to sort of cheapen over time. But again, not just my colleague study, but some other studies that have looked at last 70 or 100, 140 years do find that there's a positive premium on such a commodity futures portfolio. When I talk with you, I want to highlight this because the way this long-run commodity premium was is, is very much in your wheelhouse. It came from diversification and rebalancing. Okay. I use in my book a quote of yours that well-executed diversification is indistinguishable from magic. I loved it. And, and so I use it in the context of this example of which I've used in my books, it, originally Urban Harvey. When you look at the commodity portfolio, the compound average return can be three, four percent, even though the single constituent commodity there may be earning zero. And that's actually what, what 100 plus years of data tells. And it really comes from this. But basically, when you diversify, you reduce the portfolio variance from 30 percent to 18 percent or something. And that improves the compound return because of something called variance dragging in geometric means. And so that's how commodities get 3% more than intuition warrants. I sort of love it because it's really a minority <laughs> intuition, but certainly works. Yeah. I mean, what's important, I think also, and you, you highlight this in the book, is the fact that there's such a diversity of commodities and you want to hold all of them and you want to rebalance. And it's this rebalancing among such diverse instruments that also have high ambient volatility that produces a substantial portion of this premium, which is tied into this sort of reducing variance drag. And 
yeah, the premium produced from just this rebalancing effect on uncorrelated assets with high volatility is astonishingly large. And I think that's often missed. And you said right, because, you know, equities are also high volatility, but they are correlated when you look at them in a portfolio, don't get as much effect. And then with bonds, we tend to get correlation and lower volatility. And again, it doesn't matter too much. So it's really commodities are the best example in asset classes. And then I'm sure we'll talk later about long short strategies where this may help as well. Definitely. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting. You investigated the source of commodity returns at the individual market level, and you broke it down between the appreciation of spot commodity prices and then the rule yield. And of course, if the way that the vast majority of investors are going to get access to commodities, as you say, is through commodity futures. And so there's always this role effect. And historically, so until maybe the last 20 years or so, commodities have have had a positive role effect. But over the last 20 years, that effect has turned negative. So the vast majority of the returns come from spot. And of course, most investors acquire commodity exposure by holding a diverse basket of long only commodities. But Many commodities spend much of their their trading time with a, a slope of the futures curve that would suggest that you're, the carry you're going to earn is is better earned by by being short the commodity. And so, you know, I, I thought it was well. First of all, we're going to talk a little bit about the carry premium. We may care, spend quite a bit of time actually on the carry premium a little later, but I think there's some merit to focusing on commodity indices that explicitly seek to optimize exposure to commodities at points on the futures curve that either maximize or minimize the negative roll yield. And there are some commodity indices out there that explicitly do that. And they do have a history of outperforming both as indices and in live trading. I thought that was useful to highlight. I buy that, but then I would maybe say that Yes, commodity exposure helps. Some activities around it, such as uh, roll, uh, carry roll, helps. But maybe don't stop there. There are a couple of other things that you could then do to to improve those portfolios. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, you mentioned illiquid assets, illiquidity premium a little earlier in our conversation. You have a chapter on it in the book. I want to focus, if you don't mind, on uh, specifically private equity because, well, aside from private real estate private equity has the largest historical set of data for us to draw some conclusions. So I have long felt, and also I think this is supported by the data, and you do a great job of highlighting this this in the book, that the private equity premium, so to speak, is overstated for a variety of ways. Maybe walk us through some of the literature on that, your interpretation of that, and then why, in fact, illiquidity may not even be a risk factor, but it that actually may be, may be flipped around for many investors. Yeah. Let's start with first sort of applauding that private equity buyout industry because they charge high fees and they have somehow managed to add positive returns over the last 30 years beyond those fees. And I think the average fees may be of the ballpark when you take all in 5%. And you add a couple of percent for that, we are, we are talking of big money. So somehow they've done extremely well 
in that sense, but what that leaves for end investors after fees and in the future is the bigger question. And there are issues then on, and by the way, this was for the whole buyout industry. Then when you are thinking of oh, top quartile managers, you get even better, but that's always so. So that's, that's sort of dangerous path to take. I just wanted to start with sort of the, the positive. The questions that are often raised then are in the, in the literature are where do you compare it to and depending on the data set you look at comparing it to levered equities or small cap value or so on that may be a tougher benchmark or then the other thing is that maybe the world was different until about 15 years ago when i would say yale model made this private equity investing so popular and since then there's been much less evidence of outperformance over public equity that's to me uh, raises a puzzle so why don't we get an illiquidity premium for something where you lock your money for such a long time if or why why it's so modest and it's by the way it's also supported by looking at real estate markets where more liquid reads tend to outperform less liquid direct real estate and so on anyway so if you buy the argument which i think is not widely appreciated that there is actually scant illiquidity premium in those markets then the question is why and the answer then is that for any amount of fair illiquidity premium that we might be demanding, we might offset that by our collective love affair on smooth returns, lack of mark to market in private assets, not just private equity. And so this feature of smooth returns is something which it is a useful feature, but investors shouldn't think that it comes without a cost because investors then can accept basically lower or maybe even no illiquidity premium. And let me just make it tangible with one example. So if you look at a Cambridge buyout index over, if you look at it over the GFC 2007-9 period, it had a 25% drawdown. If you look at the public proxy for it, could be small cap value or something like that, 60% drawdown. So when investors sort of look at that, they, they, I much prefer this. And then, you know, then we got the COVID crisis, which was even shorter and didn't make much of a dent to private equity returns. So I think many investors then, then say that, oh, I can sleep so much better with those private assets without mark to market. Even if they give me no illiquidity premium, I'll still be happy to hold them instead of that damn volatile public equity. And by the way, Cliff is taking it even further, saying that there may even be a net illiquidity discount as opposed to a required illiquidity premium. We've got too little data in that area to say it conclusively. Yeah, I really like Cliff's take on this. And he proposed that public equity managers should have the option of pricing their portfolios every month based on a three-month delay or you know some, or some average, rolling average of, of underlying prices to be competitive with the private equity industry. We want more than three months, you know, to be competitive. With, yeah. <laughs> they got longer potential legs there. So anyway. For sure. I also really like how you highlight in the book that many investors categorize and perhaps even perceive private equity to be an alternative asset class or private credit to be an alternative asset class rather than lumping it in with the equity sleeve. But let's all be clear that private equity is equity and private credit is credit. And we should recognize that explicitly in terms of 
our asset allocation and recognize that it, the private nature of it hides a lot of the underlying risk that the public equity version of it exposes. There's a flip side to that. Some investors may have limits on how much they can hold privates or illiquid assets. And by focusing on what you just said, would allow them to bypass that consideration. So I, th- I think there might be takers to, your, uh, to this proposal. That's right. That's a good point. Okay. Now let's turn to the subject that my sense is you're most passionate about, which is the sources of return that are not dependent on typical risk premia, on returns of stocks or bonds or credit, et cetera. And I think the team at AQR, perhaps even you yourself, are responsible for naming these sources of return style premia. So that's great. And sort of differentiating from the kind of Famba French factor terminology. I'm, I'm a little curious why did you choose, I have, I have an intuition, but, but maybe help me out. Why did you choose to sort of differentiate this concept of style premia from the idea of factors, which is, was a little bit more familiar in the literature? Well, actually, one observation is that AQR started before we started to do then style premia language, which like when I came, I really pushed for that. We had already had another type of alternative risk premia, hedge fund premia, you know, like that was a hedge fund beta. So that's, that's yet another way of thinking about it. I think factors and styles to me are almost synonymous, except that factors can be also market premia. So they, you get to this, are you trying, are you looking at asset class exposures? I like the clarity that, okay, there are asset class premia, and then there are style premia, whereas factors can be both. When I was studying equities, bonds, and actually like in pharma French language, market term and def are factors. Then you add to that things like value and size, and which are also factors. So again, I like the clarity of uh, saying that styles are a different thing than market-based factors. Got it. My intuition was also that by calling them style premia, it allowed a little bit more latitude to include persistent sources of return with strong economic rationale, but that were rooted in behavioral or structural causes as opposed to being explicitly related to risk. I know that under the Fama French framework, he was extremely insistent that everything had a risk explanation. But I think style premia allows you to sort of relax that definitional constraint? Yeah. So we are much more open-minded whether the source of these, let's not talk of style premium, whether they are risk-based or behavioral. And, and, you know, like there are so many explanations already in the literature that you can sort of think of theory mining as much as data mining. Actually, more that than I think you can't really criticize these styles for that they are due to data mining, because when you study them in over time in different asset classes, in different regions and so on, the evidence is so persistent, pervasive and robust that it just can't be that. So there are lots of different stories, some rational risk-based, some behavioral. We are okay with both. We do think that also behavioral, behaviorally motivated factors can sustain because they also get their bad times and they sort of seem awfully like risk when the bad times are pretty long. Yeah. So maybe we should describe some of the key factors. Do you think like, or do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just 
Yes, please. You highlight four in the book and spend some time on them. So yeah, what are they? Somebody might have a different list, but I think consensus has coming closer to our way of thinking, roughly speaking, value, momentum, carry, and defensive. And I sort of stereotypically and sort of glibly say, buying cheap, buying last year's winners, buying high yielders, buying the boring stuff, selling the other side if you can do, long, short, and then ideally with style premium, do it in many different places, different asset classes and so on to get maximum diversification. So that's sort of the broad idea in practice, you can have many ways of doing value, many ways of doing, and, and you can broaden the momentum again. It can be just cross-sectional momentum between different stocks, for example, or it can be trend following, which is more a directional strategy. And so, so each of these can be broadened and you, and you can use many different metrics. There are many design decisions. In general, I say that you want to try to harvest many of these rewards, but then you want to also hedge away something like if, if you can do the long short, you get much better diversification. And so hedging some unrewarded or undesired risks is, is good. But again, that this gets to very geeky stuff then on how to design these things better. But something that I mentioned that I want to emphasize is when you can do these things in dif- many different asset classes and historical evidence supports that you can, A, I don't know. Well, it certainly makes me more confident that there's something real in there that they just, you know, anywhere we study, they seem to have worked in the long run. And second, when you do them in many different places, you get that extra diversification dimension, which is great. Yeah, I agree. So expected returns spent, you know, I want to say the bulk of the book exploring these style premia. And for me, that was my first in-depth exposure to a lot of these concepts. I'm just wondering, did you want to bring anything new to the understanding of these style premia in this book? Yeah. So partly it's, it is an update extension there. We have got 10 years of more data and actually some, you know, some, some really good years and some bad years. And I'll get to that because that matters. And there have been long new histories because people have basically extended this. Like we have, we have a study of century of style premia. Others have taken some of this premia where possible back 200 years. So you can say, say that that's irrelevant world has changed. But I do think that it's, it is very nice if you find that these things are just robust, not just wherever you look at, but however far back you look at them, that's, that's roughly the case. So I think that's good. Another thing that, that we studied quite a bit in 2010s and I wanted to share is sort of macro sensitivity analysis. So in general, we find that these long short premia don't have much macro sensitivity. And I think that makes them even better diversifiers. And the whole theme of their diversification benefits, I of course mentioned in the first book, but I didn't, I didn't talk too much of portfolio construction, so I didn't highlight it as much. I do think that it's very important. That's really maybe the beauty of them that you get really many sources of long run rewards by looking at both style dimension and asset class dimension. So that's that's a big plus. But then there are minuses, there are challenges, lots of leverage required. I didn't quite get it and highlighted as well, I think, in the first book and unconventionality. Another one is something which I cheekily say that you are short stories. The basic idea is that superior diversification often means that you are lacking narratives and, and we are sort of greedily looking at some great storytellers. I think part of the package that you just can't have 
as good stories here. So those were some things that I brought in. And the last thing I do when I emphasize is that because there were also, well, it's not only because of those, I mean, we started to write about the importance of investor patience already, like, I don't know, 2013, 14 and so on. But I think that has come home even more strongly that, that it is important for any investor, not just in this prima, but any investment, ask how can I sustain my patience in whatever investments I'm making through their bad times, which are typically longer than people have patience for. And there is this, I mean, you know, again, Cliff has talked about this sticky, importance of stickiness, and I highlight it throughout. I tell that I believe in style premia, but you have to figure out whether they or something else is things that where you can have patience and you can stick with. I give as much evidence as I can to make it encourage that belief and patience also the stories, why these things work, also addressing questions like, could there be a data mining problem? Has the world changed? Who is on the other side? All kinds of questions that sort of come up in bad times more than in good times. And and I provide some, I think, ideas how in general organizations can cultivate better patients, because again, I think it's, it's not just for this, for any investment that is crucial. Anyway, so those those were things that I hadn't covered so well, and I wanted to bring, I don't know, new emphasis in, the, in this new book. There's this potential sort of reflexive nature in helping investors to become more patient and take longer term views, because maybe you would disagree, I don't know, but how do you think about the view that at least part of the premia that patient investors earn from these strategies comes from the fact that there is a large segment of investors that don't have the patience and end up selling these strategies at a discount to investors with longer time horizons and more conviction? Yeah, I think that's very fair. And, and again, I think any it's not only here, it's really in any investment. I think investors have, in general, most patients with equities. Well, well, we'll probably come back to this later, but and I think it's somehow it's it's fair. I'm more sort of laughing about the linkage people make with the private assets and patients because again, the smoothing feature, I think, I don't know, it solves the patients for you. I mean, you can't pride in your patients when you are hiding the mark-to-market volatility. And in some sense, I think the true test comes with this to market challenges that you get and so totally agree with your point. So that's part of the way you earn these premia through being able to stick with them. So you mentioned that in this book, you investigated the macro sensitivity of these factors. Any more important than other conclusions that you drew from this analysis? Yeah. So basically, when you look at stock selection strategies, there's very modest or non-robust macro sensitivities, especially when you do when you do things industry neutral and market neutral, then these styles sort of they, they take away much of the market risk and, and those market and maybe industry exposures, they gave you the macro sensitivity. So we find very modest macro sensitivities beyond though some people highlight that value strategies, sort of anti-bond and defensive is bond-like. But again, we find that it's not too strong and especially when you do these things industry neutral, it is it is not very strong. To me, the most interesting macro sensitivities come with explicitly directional strategies like trend following and macro momentum, which is sort of similar trend following, but chasing past macro trends, buying some asset classes based on favorable or unfavorable macro trends. And 
basically there's this nice smiley feature that these strategies tend to do well whether let's say whether equity markets are having up or down moves as long as they are big or rates or inflation so in all of these cases you basically benefit from large moves in their strategies and typically that's the, those are situations where other asset classes are especially equities have got if anything sort of a frown pattern rather than smile so they are wonderful diversifiers in in that sense from this macro perspective right and i wanted to touch on because i think a lot of people have inflation on their mind right now so you did just touch on it, but i want to make it explicit if there is an explicit point here but are any particular factors particularly positively related to inflationary periods? Yeah, I partly poo-pooed that by saying that with stock selection value and defensive, there could be people say that value might benefit from that. There are some pictures that show, but those pictures, when you try to translate those into some correlations, look at what kind of long-run correlation there has been or what kind of rolling correlation there has been or how much of value or strategy performance, inflation moves have explained over time, tiny, non-robust and so on. So it's very, I would say, anecdotal there. In general, I don't find with styles much there. And the best and most robust patterns are just that with big moves, either direction, trend following, macro momentum tend to have those favorable outcomes. Intuition that often, let's say, inflation use tend to be somewhat gradual. And when we think of what's behind, let's say, trend-following strategies, part of the explanation often is sort of underreaction to sustained moves and so on. Well, it should fit well with these types of inflation types of problems, which again, we didn't have for a while and now we are having, and that seems to be um, working in the favor of these strategies. Yeah. Yeah. To give investors their due, I think there's a lot of acrimony around trend managers because they did have a a more challenging decade. If anything, I think it was the 2010s were the most challenging decade, going back 100 years for trend-following strategies. Obviously, an environment that was particularly fruitful for trends. You do go into the book a little bit on what might explain the modest performance of trend-following over the 2010s. And I think it's maybe worth discussing some of those factors because it may provide that extra level of comfort that would allow people to take to dip their foot into trend as you know one of the core style premia that are worth exploring yeah so my colleagues yeah they looked at really long histories and asked what was different about 2010s and in some way the bottom line first is the mechanical bottom line is sounds trivial that they were short trends like, and, and macro trends, so just to end it. but there were other possibilities. There could have been bad diversification and, and, and uh, less efficient use of the existing trends, but it really could be explained by exceptionally modest trends. And I think when you, when you sort of try to make economic sense of that, it seems best explained by central banks trying to curtail trends. You know, they didn't want things too hot or too cold. And so when they could, in 2010s, they could. They were sort of preventing markets from getting fed put was there, certainly when the risk of scenario happened. And so now I think it's an interesting situation when central banks may be in a situation where they can't do this sort of easy thing. They have to face some hard choices. And I mentioned it in a couple of places in the book because I've been sort of waiting for that, not for the sake of trend following, but it's just that it has been such a 
nice time for central bankers not not having to face hard choices and now now you are getting to a situation and where they are endangering their credibility by being too soft on inflation and if that means now that they have to tighten policy aggressively as they and you know, we can debate whether it's the current plans are aggressive but but if they have to do that and sort of hurt financial markets and maybe you know maybe create a recession with that possibilities also also there to contain inflation to to get, take it back that's a kind of hard choice that gives now in the context of trend following strategies and macro momentum it gives a more open environment than 2010s when central banks could be curtailing market moves in the direction okay let's talk about carry because ever since koijin wrote that just extraordinarily comprehensive paper i have felt this has been backed up over and over by our own research and by subsequent papers. But I think diversified carry, you know, along the lines of what, of what Koijin proposed, and, and there are other ways to interpret that and, and structure it, as there are for virtually every style premium. But I think it's perhaps the most underappreciated of all of the diversified global risk premium strategies. I mean, I might go, fo- go so far as to say that that every major asset class premia is in fact a carry premia, right? The equity premium is de facto a carry premium, the duration premium, the carry premium, sorry, the uh, credit premium. So, okay, so let's spend a little time on carry. If you don't mind, maybe start with the basics because I like to say that sort of carry is what you earn when price doesn't change. How would you add to that? And how would you sort of describe this idea of carry in general? Almost what you said, but you know, like if you think of commodity carry, it's actually it's it's a roll down. So I would say carry and roll down. So therefore, it's predictable carry. And the way Koyen and others in that uh, in that paper they they basically say that it's an unchanged capital market environment or unchanged price structure. So that includes the roll down when the first futures drifts towards the spot price or. Same thing with with the term structure. So, so you know when a bond rolls down, so you are earning some yield advantage when nothing happens. But you are actually when nothing happens to the yield curve, then there is a predictable aging effect for them. So that would be you know the very geeky addition. So I, I sort of like that. What you earn if nothing happens? Nothing happens makes any wall selling strategies pretty wonderful. If nothing nothing happens, then again depending on the structure how it is. But so we should recognize that. That also then means that when something happens, that often sort of goes goes against you. I sometimes joke that I love all my children equally and all these styles, so I don't want to play favorites. But if I did play favorites, it would be rather maybe then for trend and defensive, which have this feature of doing well in bad times, tending to do well, not always, but and carry and value may have, and especially carry carry has got a reputation of doing badly in bad times, which there's this funny thing that some investors like it because that gives you a reason why you should expect it to continue. It's a risk-based explanation, but often it's a sort of, it's too much of a good reason because it's such a bad, you know, such an ugly thing that then they may not like it. And that may be a reason why many then say, no, thank you to carry, carry strategies. I think sort of this caution that it compounds the core equity type of risks that I have. But then the last thing I say, and you, I'm sure you know this, that 
Koyen's paper has got this nice feature or nice result that it says that actually broad carry doesn't have this ugly behavior or, or this behavior of picking up pennies in front of a steamroller or, or there are many, many nice terms for this type of dangerous behavior. Some of them do credit carry does, wall selling does, a currency carry. Yeah, certainly the last 20 years has had that. But when, then when you think of dividend yield strategies, stock selection, favoring bond markets with steep yield curves, commodities with acquisition. So then when you put them together, you get something which has got very mild beta. So that's sort of nice. Then, and that supports, I think, your point that that's a good addition. But again, I'd say I wouldn't want to put just one in. I, I'd, I'd want to also put the other ones in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I certainly agree. And, and trend is, if, if I had to choose a favorite child, trend would be my favorite child too. What's so interesting about carry is that at the individual asset level, it can, I think, be explained through a risk-based explanation, but that, and I guess going back to the core fundamentals, maybe the idea is that buying any risky asset is explicitly selling volatility on that asset, but the volatility doesn't manifest across assets at the same time. And so you, or in the same direction. And so by combining this vol selling across bonds and stocks and commodities and currencies, et cetera, that you diversify a lot away a lot of that sort of systematic short, you know, what people normally think of as shortfall. And you end up being able to collect a fairly substantial risk-adjusted premium, mostly because of the diversity that you get from all of these different markets. Then you have got again a less good risk-based explanation, both from the from the things which didn't have the beta and the diversification. It's sort of that now you are back to this that okay, starts to sound like behavioral or, or, or not something we can explain away. Yeah. From a macro consistency perspective, yes. Yeah, totally. So let's talk about then the maybe marrying trend and carry. I often call these sort of kissing cousins because and I think you talked about how most Traditional premia have sort of an inverted smile and and trend has kind of a, a positive smile. Wouldn't you say that those sort of fit together hand in glove pretty perfectly? Yeah, well, they do for the asset manager. So my point is that that we saw lots of trend following asset managers sort of follow that point. They wanted to diversify and get some some good rewards in bad times. And then if you are the end investor who already has a portfolio which has got lots of equity beta and you want something that helps in those tail events, then you can think of those carry additions as sort of, I don't know, polluting the good safe haven characteristics of the... So to the extent that trend has got that feature, I don't want that pollution from carry or anything else, but certainly not from carry strategies that have got equity beta, which is exactly the sort of, the, I don't know, the problem I want to solve. So yes, good diversification, but it really matters at what level you do it and and can be good, but it should be done with very open eyes. So. Right. And and in the perception that, that many investors have that carry does have this pro-cyclicality to it, despite the fact that Koyan's paper demonstrates that really doesn't have any real procyclicality or much in the way of long-term equity beta. So maybe there's there's both sides of that. There's a little learning to do and there's maybe rationale behind it. 
and maybe maybe to design again one may want to design you know don't make your carry strategy just a combination of the ones with positive beta but but include their things for example again dividend yield strategies or so, so basically that's that's something which is not always included included in, in in carry composites and that tends to have a defensive characteristic favoring high dividend yielders so. love it love it defensive i mean defensive has to be the most counterintuitive style premium of them all right i mean how could it be true that investors should expect to earn a higher compound returns by taking less risk and yet this seems to be one of the most pervasive and economically and statistically significant effects in markets. So help close the gap. What's going on here? <laughs> sure. And it is really, you know, the risk reward, we, we learn risk reward trade off from theory. And then you look at equities versus bonds or cash, and that trade off is alive and well. And then you look at within equities goes away. Like there isn't basically. So the empirical evidence, especially in equities, and it, it does extend to some extent elsewhere, but it is that the boring stocks have similar long-run returns, or perhaps even a little better long-run returns than their more speculative brethren. And this is true whether we look at sort of this defensive using the statistical low and high beta, low and high volatility, those types of metrics, or we look at fundamental metrics like quality favoring, favoring the boring quality stocks using, using lots of metrics. And it works across the whole market or within industries and in many different countries and so on. And, and again, you can take it to, to some extent to fixed income and to even outside, I think I think Falkenstein book was the first place where I saw this like huge list. I, I don't know, obviously, like sports betting is long long shot bias is something related to this. But it he just he just had lots of uh, places in the world where it where this this idea works. Anyway, so why do we find this that the boring stuff has got better sharp ratios as they do? Why why do we have this opportunity to to either maybe? And so the implication, of course, is you can take more risk. So you can take more risk, and uh, uh, or you can take lower, earn the same return with lower risk, or you can monetize it through some strategies, like my colleagues' bet against beta strategy, where you use leverage to basically create positive returns. But then you are no longer really getting the defensive nature. You are you are taking market type risk, but you are making more money then by favoring the boring stocks with the higher sharp prices. Okay, so why? It's not CAPM because CAPM says that beta explains everything and this says that no, beta doesn't explain anything. The two favorite explanations I think in the literature are leverage aversion, leverage constraints and lottery preferences. And the intuition here is that if you think of those very speculative stocks, they already contain embedded leverage, bang for the buck, that's very convenient for investors. Investors may accept lower sharp ratio for, for that convenience. Likewise, those stocks are sort of the proverbial lottery tickets in financial markets, and you get the entertainment part of it. And the flip side then is that the boring low beta stocks, they need to be juiced up with leverage to make them really matter, and they need the higher sharp ratio to attract investor demand. So, so both of these explanations have been uh, sort of pursued with even more detail, and it seems that both really matter, and, and they are, I think, good complementary investors. And we don't really have to care too much which of them is more important. But, but so I think together, they are pretty 
compelling and and when i think logically when i think is either of those features going away anytime soon they just seem, seem you know, leverage aversion leverage constraints certainly are are there and and lottery preferences also from lots of literature seem to be there so i think this opportunity will be there for a long time i mean if my twitter feed is it is at all representative the leverage aversion and lottery preferences are alive and well i can tell you <laughs> that really hasn't hasn't changed at all through time are you moved at all by eric falkenstein's thesis that the low beta low vol defensive effect is motivated by investor preferences that skew towards relative status or maybe we can describe it as tracking error aversion as sort of a risk a risk based explanation yeah I mean, there are variants of, of that. Like one logic is, is again, like, like this tracking error logic then that from a delegated manager perspective, whether you are deviating from beta 1 towards beta 0.7 or beta 1.3, they are both adding to your risk. And from that, pers- that, that again, that, that story could explain. I, I do think that that's sort of a, if I had given you a third one, it would be that. And Eric takes it very broadly then, like there is the whole status in financial markets, I think it is interesting then, and, and you can think it, especially in the context of delegated managers. So I think it would be my third one on the list. But I, I, I do think if I have to make choices, I would, I would go with these first two. Okay, so we covered the classic risk premia, equities, duration, credit, commodities. We covered four core style premia. If you want to say trend is a little different, maybe there's five. And... So now I want to talk about how to put all of these pieces together. And I think, although you don't use this term very often in your writing, to my observation, would you describe your overall framework about how to maybe start thinking about putting these things together as leaning in the direction of risk parity? Yes, yes. I would. I think we are singing from the same songbook here. So my unconstrained ideal is, is that, okay, figure out the things you believe in, and it would be this few asset class premia, a few style premia, and maybe I, I would, you know, some some illiquid, I mean, it could be, could be, you look around my, the real estate here or so, so, so some, something like that. So, so, so tennis, tennis things that I really believe in the long run. And then, Sort of EQL risk is a, is a great starting point, and you can when may, maybe fine tune it, but it really it, so that's that's sort of the risk parity spirit. But and it turns out that actually it, it does res- resemble sort of scarily well my portfolio, and I, I haven't really designed it quite like that, but but it sort of converts to that direction anyway. Yet and yet, that's me with my portfolio. I think realistically only a small number of investors can execute it and can stick with it. So there are several reasons why it's difficult to do this and why especially it's difficult to stick with it. Just to, as a starting point, the leverage, you know, you need decent amount of leverage and sorting to make make these other things matter as much as equity. Equities have got this nice embedded leverage and, and so they already have got lots of volatility in them to make all these other things matter as much as that equity component requires plenty of leverage and sorting and they can be done i think smartly and so on but it still would be i think too much for most investors well so i want to touch on that a little bit because 
I've always found it odd. You know, you've got this, this comes straight from the top, the SEC, the prudent investor rule, the ultimate consideration in portfolios, aside from client risk tolerance and preferences, is diversification. And yet the vast majority of even institutional portfolios, which are over, overseen by boards with governance objectives that should adhere to the prudent investor rule, all of these huge institutions with these ultra-long time horizons, objectively, lots of access to extremely inexpensive leverage, yet they are overwhelmingly dominated by global equity risk. And so, you know, I hear you say that, you know, this is your portfolio. It's also my portfolio. But why is it that even huge institutions that have You'd think all of the tools, resources, and governance structures to be able to allocate in the most efficient way possible for their stakeholders still can't wrap their head around the concept of diversification. Yeah. So first, I, I, a little lightly, I, you, you know this and some in the audience know this, Cliff's Three dirty words in finance: leverage, shorting, and derivatives (LSD). So, but that 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 concept of three dirty words, I think it is important. That, you know, we talked earlier about private equity. You know, buyouts used to be leveraged buyouts was the term, and and I heard I think in the capitalism podcast a while ago this this that their admiration to the marketing genius of getting rid of that. LBO term and talking about private equity instead uh, that has been very valuable for the for the for the industry anyway so 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 certainly I, I think there is a there is a stigma aspect which which however you you know however you can help portfolio diversification with that greater leverage it's 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 hard to do with that stigma and again leverage has got its challenges and again you know we, we all know you have to then manage it very uh Carefully, prudently, and so on. So, so there are methods for doing that. But I, so, so I would, I would just say that it is a, it's a very difficult starting point. There's also, and it doesn't stop. You know, that's that's an advantage for equities. Another one is unconventionality. Another one is, um, well, or related to this unconventionality, which is, I think, quite important. Is this sort of, you know, everybody doing it? And and I say. Only equities are forgiven a bad decade. Everything else gets sort of bailed out on. And so, so, and that's that's important because it it means that that there is this stickiness. I was thinking actually uh, just of, the, of this another day that there is maybe there is a diversification versus stickiness trade off that that equities we, we we know there shouldn't be as big equity allocation, but the stickiness sort of supports that. And, and so therefore, I don't know, my conclusion would be that we share the right, the same ideal, whether any or every investor or not, every, every investor certainly cannot move there, but, but whether any investor can move that direction depends partly on their beliefs and constraints and so on. But in most cases, they will end up having something much more equity concentrated. But, but I think it's right that we are preaching the direction and then, then we debate how far any investor can go on that path. Yeah, and to be fair, from a macro consistency standpoint, not every investor can can hold hold the diversified style premium uh, portfolio. So, so we have to acknowledge that. Um, 
many investors try to sort of nudge in that direction by using, for example, smart beta type indices that kind of conflate uh, equity beta with tilts, like long only tilts in the direction of value or the direction of momentum, et cetera. How much marginal benefit would these would these investors get, do you think, from from explicitly separating these different betas from, so for example, um, a, a few different companies have made available these um, slightly leveraged core beta ETFs. So for example, to approximate a 60-40 portfolio, um, you hold 90% in, in equities and with the 10% left over, you collateralize a uh, 60% bond position, right? So you've got a 90-60 portfolio instead of a 60-40 portfolio. So if you just allocate, say, two-thirds of your portfolio capital to this type of portfolio, which effectively gives you a 100% exposure to a 60-40 portfolio, and now you've got kind of one-third of the portfolio real estate that's free to allocate to alternatives, well, now you can explicitly allocate to a you know, diversified market neutral style premium strategy and or, you know, uh, trend strategies, that sort of thing. Um, so how would you guide investors in terms of the marginal benefit of maybe trying to nudge in, in that direction versus trying to conflate their um, equity exposure with some of the factor exposures through long only tilts? So first, if you do long only, you do get similar exposures. You just get them somewhat less efficiently, and you don't get almost any diversification. Of course, that like because again, the long only, the equity directional risk dominates the portfolio. You're just getting something, and it is. It's certainly true that if you allow some amount of shorting and even modest, you know the. First effects are always most powerful. So a little bit of shorting possible, a little bit of leverage possible, that will be especially helpful. And that can be now, I've seen those results more in the context of stock selection strategies. Now you are describing more sort of, I don't know, maybe stock bond stock bond thing. And there, there I confess that I, I quickly get come to think then of, hey, we are just talking of two things that don't, neither of which likes inflation. So, so the... the among the considerations I would have on the next diversification would be to get something that benefits from higher inflation. So it's interesting that I guess I would still favor the various alternative risk premia, but I would also want to, I don't know, maybe have a tilt among them for things that can benefit from inflation related to your earlier question. So again, trends and macromoms may be especially useful there. Got it. So if, if you're going to move in this direction, still work to prioritize diversification, but acknowledge the overwhelming amount of risk in the portfolio that is still invested in assets that do not respond very favorably to inflationary environments and therefore maybe emphasize trend strategies and macro momentum or macro trading type strategies in the, in the other sleeve because they're most likely to help provide ballast in an inflationary environment. Got it. Great. Well, I have to say that the new book, I personally, as a fellow nerd, really enjoyed Expected Returns and continue to enjoy it. I refer to it often. I do think that 
this new book, which to my observation is more approachable, a little bit more practitioner oriented, is a great addition to the repertoire. And it is very engaging and approachable and, and has some very actionable ideas that institutions, advisors, and individual investors can take away. I've really enjoyed the opportunity to chat with you today about some of the the concepts that were of particular note to me. And I just wanted to thank you so much for your time and generosity in sharing your wisdom. Thanks, Adam. No, I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, hope also we'll get to see live sometime now in the coming year as the world is normalizing in some ways anyway. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.